Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. The following podcast is an exclusive presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips and advice on writing fast, writing often and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Well, hello, hello, hello. This is your prolific writer podcast host, Ryan J. Pelton. Episode number 65 is going to blow your mind. Yes, it is. Because today I have one of my writing heroes on the show who was gracious enough to come on the show. I've been so excited, so pumped to share this interview with you. It's been a long time coming. We recorded this quite a few weeks ago. And Mr. Joe R. Lansdale is on the show. Now, for some of you, you may not even know who Joe R. Lansdale is, and that's too bad. Uh, but you're going to meet Mr. Lansdale from East Texas. Um, he is the producer and writer of the Happen Leonard uh, TV show and the Happen Leonard novels, and he's written 40, 50 novels. Uh, and we talk about that. He's been around forever, and he's just a, a wonderful man, a hero of mine. And really, he's really inspired me to become a writer. And uh, and, and in years past, I've written, read a lot of his stuff on writing, and he's really helped a lot of writers. And just thinking through kind of a, a workmanlike attitude towards writing, it's, it's put the butt in the chair put the words on the page, write the stories you want to write and, and get after it. And we're going to talk about that. And he's going to give us some huge writerly truth and advice and tips and trick from a professional writer who's been doing it for a long, long time. And so however you found the prolific writer podcast, I'm so glad that you're here. Maybe it's your first time. And this podcast is dedicated to helping you write fast and write often and write well. And however you found us, you're on the train, you're, you're working out, you're with the kids. So glad that you stopped by uh, the show. And, and, and I'm hoping this, this, podcast uh in this interview and and, and all the the shows we've done the the 64 other shows will help you in your writing journey wherever you are if you're just starting or or been doing it for a long time 
been trying to offer you some inspiration and tricks and tips and from people that are in the trenches doing it, doing the work, producing the work, writing the books, getting it out into the world. And Joe R. Lansdale is going to help us tremendously today. And so look forward to that in just a couple moments here. Now, before we jump into the interview today, just a couple housekeeping items. Uh, we are proudly sponsored and supported by Project Entertainment Network, a family of podcasts. And there's about, I think, 30 podcasts now, cl- close to 30, uh, a variety uh, a variety of themes and topics and subjects. And so go check out Project Entertainment Network. But we're, every week, we're also um, sponsored by Subculture Corsets and Clothing. Subculture Corsets and Clothing, as always, you know, you hear me blabber about them all the time. But if you go to subculturecorsets.com and you're looking for some kind of cool retro vintagey kind of clothes and, and some other just really neat stuff and accessories, go to subculturecorsets.com. They will hook you up. They will help you out. And uh, they are located in Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. So if you're actually in the Jacksonville, Florida area, maybe this summer, maybe you're on a family tri- trip or you're from there, they're just off I-95 and, and they actually have a physical store. But if you go online, subculturecorsets.com and you put in the prolific writer at checkout, you will get 10% off on your first order. So please do that. They have great stuff, great accessories, great clothing. Go check them out. You'll, you'll love what they have. So thank you, Subculture Corsets and Clothing, for supporting the Prolific Writer podcast and all the hosts of, I should say, all the networks. Uh, I can't even talk today. Okay, people. All the shows on the Project Entertainment Network. Thank you for supporting us and the work that we're doing, and thank you for the work you're doing. So check out subculturecorsets.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Put in the prolific writer and you will get 10% off your first purchase. So again, you can tell I'm excited. I'm enthusiastic. I'm pumped today to share with you the interview with Joe R. Lansdale, such a great guy, such helpful advice. I, I think this might be one of the better interviews I've done, not because I'm interviewing, but, but the things that Joe talks about is going to encourage a lot of you. And I think it's going to blow up some of the myths that we have around writing and what it actually takes. And and I love also the fact that Joe just kind of takes the path that he wanted to take and doesn't let genre, doesn't let markets dictate what he does and what he creates. And it's really worked out for him. And so I think there's some encouragement there. So without further ado, here is Joe R. Lansdale. Welcome, everyone, to The Prolific Writer. Today, I have uh, Joe R. Lansdale on the show. I'm privileged to have him. Uh, what a fantastic writer he is. 30-plus novels, 200-plus short stories, the Happen Leonard series, TV show, a lot going on. So welcome to the show, Joe. Well, thank you. I, I do want to say that it's more like 50 novels and more like 400 short pieces. See, that that's what I thought. <laughs> I, I, I low-balled it because I didn't, you know, I just wanted you to be humble and yeah. keep you humble. But um, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm working on it. Yeah, right, right. If you, if you could do a little more work, that'd probably be helpful. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's so, right. So I have to tell real quick a Joe R. Lansdale story because uh, this is how I got to know your work. And about 10 years uh-huh. ago, I was in a half price books and there was a, uh, a book on the shelf. It was a fine dark line, uh, which is a great book. One of my f- favorite stories of yours. And it was sitting on a rack and I picked it up and I saw your name. I was like, Hey, I, this guy sounds interesting. And I looked at the publisher and the publisher was in London. And then I kind of skimmed it and it said you had 
you know, won an award in, in uh, a British writing award. And so I had thought you were British and didn't really think anything <laughs> of it. And, and then I started hearing you on interviews and realized that you're from East Texas and you're not British at all. And so how does Joe R. Lansdale no, I'm not. <laughs> from uh, East Texas, how did you become a writer? How did that all happen? Well, you know, I, I, I actually comic books. I, I was born in Gladewater, Texas, and uh, when I was very young, we moved to Mount Enterprise, Texas, which was about 150 people at that time. I think it's, it's booming today with like 400 and something. But uh, I, I was there until I was about the fifth grade, and then I moved back to Gladewater. But during that time I was in Mount Enterprise, there was a little store. Uh, Pete and May Green had a kind of general store, and in there they had comic books, and I started reading comic books. And uh, I wanted to write them. I mean, I was I was taken in immediately, and I was very young. My my, I think I could read when I was four. And my mother was started reading comics and some books to me when I was little. But as soon as I was able to buy my own comics, they would take me there to buy them, and then I just kept doing it. And I said, "This is what I want to do." So I tried to draw and write comics. I wasn't that great an artist, but I really liked the stories best, and I began to develop that, and then. There was a comic called Classics Illustrated, which was popular and uh, classic fiction that they interpreted in comics. And it, it's been tried to revive it a couple times, but there were nothing like those originals because they were so accurate. They were very, very close to the books. They did everything from crime and punishment to Edgar Allan Poe to Jack London to Mark Twain. I mean, you name it, they were in those Classics Illustrated. And that led me to reading the originals. And when I would go, to my, we would go to Gladewater to visit relatives, they would drop me off at the library, and I would say, well, you know, I read this book, Call of the Wild, I mean, a comic Call of the Wild, I want to read the book. And so I just wanted to write more and more, and so in just, instead of just wanting to write comic books, I now wanted to write, uh, you know, stories and prose, and at the same time, I was watching, TV was relatively new then, as uh, I was born in 51, so when I was 54, 55, they were bringing like uh, old serials to these uh, television shows and mm. hop along casting. So those things, too, affected me, uh, especially type things like Tarzan, which then led me to reading the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. And so before I wanted to be a writer, and the comics made me feel that way, but when I read the Edgar Rice Burroughs books at that time, I had to be a writer. Mm. And so there was, you know, my fate was set. So were your parents, uh, you know, writers, creatives, I mean, were they, were they encouraging you towards this? Like what were some of the influences that kind of kept you going? As uh, um, my, my parents were very encouraging. My father couldn't read or write. Hmm. Um, my father was a mechanic and he had been, he was 42, I think when I was born, hmm. something like that, 41, 42. And he had been a boxer wrestler during the uh, great depression. It's not all he did. He worked in canning, companies and different things but from time to time he would catch the rails and he would ride to these different carnivals and they would wrestle and box for money and that's how he made extra money and it's also led to my second passion martial arts mm -hmm. and uh my mother was uh you, you know she she had 11th grade education but she was a painter and she enjoyed painting and she was a big reader so I had these two influences on both sides, but both of them encouraged me to read and to write. Well, that's great. So, um, you know, one of the, the things that's, you know, why I want to have you on the show is just because even though you've written tons of stuff and, and you're all over the place is that so many people don't know who you are and they need to know who you are. And, uh, 
you know, you've written in a lot of different, yeah, well, thank you. you've written in a lot of different genres, you know, horror and crime and thrillers and Westerns, novels, short stories, comics, film, TV, um, drive the drive in, mm-hmm. which is, you know, can't really figure out exactly what it is, but I love it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the sage, you know, common advice in writing and publishing is, you know, stick to one genre, just live there and don't write anything else. Uh, you know, why have you kind of gone against the grain and said, you know what, I'm just going to write the stories that I, I want to write kind of, when did that, when did you kind of realize that was the path you wanted to take? It's the only path I ever considered. You know, the, the, the truth of the matter is I didn't become a writer to, to work for other people and to do what they wanted. I became uh, a writer to, you know, to tell the stories I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And that's always been it. So I've never really considered that advice. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly heard that advice all the time that I was becoming a writer and all the time that I became a writer and all the time I've been a writer and I've ignored it. And, um, you know, I, I can't speak for other people, but for me, I, I didn't get into this to just be a success, meaning that I'd find some niche and then from then on I could write a certain kind of book and, you know, uh, be the super bestseller. I mean, I, I do quite well doing exactly what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've tried to continue that all the way through because if you follow your passion, you're going to enjoy yourself a lot more. Mm-hmm. And you have, I think, a greater chance of staying uh, valid because a lot of people I know that decided I'm going to be a horror writer. Well, when horror died, so did their careers. Mm-hmm. But with me, I was always moving about. I was always, a, you know, a moving target. And I think that's the way I, I prefer to be. And, and, it, and I also wrote tons of short stories when a lot of people say, well, you know, you, you write a few short stories and you jump to novel. Mm-hmm. I want to write a short story. I write a short story. I love short stories. Mm-hmm. There are people that say, oh, if you work in comics, they won't take you seriously. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I take me seriously. I, I take my work <laughs> seriously, not myself anyway. Right. And uh, so, I'm, and then I had stuff sell the films. I had, and I, I, wrote, I wrote for Batman and, Superman, the animated series, especially Batman, and I've written an animated Batman movie, Son of Batman, and so then I'll jump from there to write a novel like The Bottoms, which won the Edgar, and uh, which may be a film soon. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things I've been able to do without feeling like I'm trapped in a box or that I have to repeat the novel I wrote before. Now, I do have a Happen Leonard series, and I've written a number of those in a row, but then I leave them alone sometimes for eight to four or five years, depending. The eight years, the first time I left them, I think four or five the second time. And, uh, you know, it's just the way I like to work. Do what I want to do and make my life fun. So I do what I would do for free, mm-hmm. and I get paid for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's so refreshing to hear that because so many uh, writers and and people listen to our show, they, you know, they get so caught up in, you know, what genre is selling, what markets, and and they end up writing books they hate and and things they're just trying to to sell. But I I love that, just following your passion, following what you like, what you, um, you know, enjoy. And so when you, because you you write in so many different genres and mediums and, and is there a different muscle when you're, when you're kind of thinking through, I mean, how do you even determine, I mean, I know you have probably publishing contracts that you have to, you know, uh, you know, finish stuff that you say, you know, they want you to do, but, but I mean, uh, is there a way of, of saying, okay, what's the next project? You know, is it going to be a short, is it going to be a novel? Is it going to be this style, that style? I mean, is there a different muscle you kind of have to tap into or is it just, you just kind of go? I mainly just kind of go, but there, there, there are different angles, but I mean, you know, if I'm working on a book 
and I've contracted for it. I contracted for it because it was a book I wanted to do. Okay. So I never feel like, oh my God, I've just got to, you know, I, I, I do it. And certainly within my career, I have done some stuff to pay the bill. You know, I wrote some MIA hunters under a, a pseudonym and I wrote a Western under a pseudonym and a couple of other things like that. And, but even then I said, how can I have as much fun as possible with these things? And they were earlier in my career and I learned two things from it that I could have fun, but second of all, I wasn't going to do it again. And so when I got to a point where I had done that enough, because it also teaches you a lot early on, so it's worth doing for that. It's like an exercise. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you have to say, look, you know, you can only be you as well as you can. There's nothing wrong with deciding to do a pen name novel if you want. Mm -hmm. If you say, oh, that would be fun, especially if you're one of those writers that's gotten trapped in a genre because you did follow that advice to write one thing, that's great. But for me, it's always been about still doing what you want to do. And, um, you know, you have to give it regular exercise to stay in the game because it's how you make a living. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I always want to be paid as best I can. I don't do it without pay, although I probably would if I had no other choice. But I always try to get the best, you know, deals I can, the best payment I can, the best contracts I can, because that's what keeps me able to keep doing the books I want to do, the stories I want to tell. That's great. But there's, as far as extra muscle, I think there's a different attitude. I don't know about muscle, the same muscle. Mm-hmm. You write as well as you yep. can. But uh, you, when you write screenplay, you know that you're not going to have a tremendous amount of internalization because it's, it's a visual art. You can have more scope sometimes in film, uh, but because it requires a, a line can say, you know, the, the great Western frontier is a lot different than describing the sagebrush and the sky and, and all that sort of stuff. So I, I find screenplays and teleplays easy to do. Mm-hmm. They're different to do. Now, and just because they're easy doesn't mean everyone has the knack. For some people, it's difficult. Right. Yeah. We're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into that just in a, in a few minutes as far as film and TV and, and kind of get into that. Because your story is interesting uh, that you you know didn't go to college for writing and worked different jobs. And if I remember correctly, yeah. you, you tell a story about how when you started, you wrote something like 90 short stories and just kind of sent them out. Yeah. And you're really. I wrote one a day. Yeah. What, what what happened was I was working in the rose field, you know, and uh, the weather got really bad and we, we couldn't work. And uh, I was also doing other kinds of farm work, too, but I wasn't getting much work. And it, it, it just really set in. And my wife said, well, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last, but I've got a pretty good job right now. And she was working packing lunch meat in these freezer cars, you know, and I was working in the rose fields. And uh, she said, uh, why don't you take three months off the ride? And I said, well, yeah, I don't think it's going to rain for three months. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and she said, well, you know what? It's really cold weather. It's wet weather. You're not working right now. I've got this job. Why don't you take three months to ride? But when I come home, I have something done. <laughs> and so when she went to work, I didn't know any better. I had a manual typewriter. We used to joke I married her for her typewriter. Uh, Montgomery Ward's typewriter. And I would sit down every day with a stack of paper, and I would say, gosh, I've got to have something finished. So I wrote a short story finished every day. Now, back then, this was before I found my my, my knack for writing shorter times, because I was learning. When you're learning, you do things differently. And I was writing all day. I mean, I was writing 8, 12 hours a day. You know, I 
get up and fix something to eat, go to the bathroom, take a walk if the weather permitted. And it really, and really, the weather did stay awful for I think like a month at least. Mm. But when that was done, I had a month. First month was done. I had thirty stories, and I said, "Well, you think I should continue doing this?" And she said, "I do." I told you three months, and so I wrote ninety stories in ninety days. Some of them were short, some of them were longer, and none of them were any good. But <laughs> the thing is, is I sent those stories out. And back then, there were 10, 15, you know, sometimes more magazines that you could send one short story to. And because they bought a lot of different kinds of short stories. And so I kept them in the mail. And over, I think it took a period of four years, you know, for those stories to keep coming back because I just kept sending them out, which in the meantime, I was writing new material. But those 90 stories gave me about 1,000 rejections. It gave me exactly 1,000 rejections. That's little. Because after I would send those out, I'd find new markets. That just shows you how many magazines mm-hmm. there were back then. There was no internet. It was none of that. But there was, the racks were filled with magazines. Everything from you know good housekeeping to fantasy and science fiction bought fiction. Now, a lot of those stories that I sent out, I sent out to markets that would never have bought them. But I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But what happened is it taught me about markets. It taught me about keeping something in the mail. It taught me to sit down and write. And then later on, I learned that I did better by writing three hours a day. I, I did five for a while, but three is perfect for me. I get more done in three hours than I do in nine. Mm-hmm. Because after three, I begin to get diminishing returns. I learned that from that. I learned to keep things in the mail. Now, we don't do that now. We send it by you know, I can send it on the email, and I don't really have to worry now. Thank goodness I have an agent who handles things for me, mm-hmm. which you don't need until you've been around a while. And second, right. I have a, a reputation that helps me because people come to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I but that I, 90 yeah. days and those, those uh, what's that? No, I, I was just saying, I, I think, you know, going through those 90 stories, I mean, that what talking about, you know, a lifetime of, of writing uh-huh. in a short period of time. And uh, I think. Well, just, yeah, yeah. And I think too many writers, they, they just don't think that way. They don't think, hey, I just need to sit People down. don't don't work like they used to. They, right. they think they're supposed to be a success immediately. Right. I, you know, when I'm speaking to you, I'm getting a double up. I'm hearing me talking to you. So oh, okay. if, if I'm a little hesitant at the time, that's what's going on. Okay. But uh, that 90 days was one of the best lessons I ever had. In fact, I, I think it was the best writing lesson I ever had. And uh, it, it really, I think it was about, I learned I could finish something. And I also learned I loved short stories. And by the time I got finished with those 90 days, I was a much better writer. And I was a much, and I, and I kind of got all the crap out of my system. In other words, I got all of the things I had read that I was somehow rewriting without knowing it. All the TV shows I liked, all the books, all the comics, all of that stuff. You know, I didn't lose it. I kept the core of it to use as a kind of catalyst for stories in the, in the future. But I... I got the more literal inspirations out of my system, and that's what I was trying trying to do, although I wasn't entirely aware of that at the time. So to me, that's the best education you could get. It beats any kind of writing school, creative writing, and I've taught creative writing, and I'm I've, and even though I've, I'm writer-in-residence at Stephen F. Austin, I haven't taught in a few years, but I'm, I've always been kind of reluctant to say, yeah, that's your best course. Mm-hmm. It depends. I think if you get a writer who actually makes a living at writing, uh, then that help, that's more helpful than someone who has a school of writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody begins to sound just alike, and they all, they all tell you to write only this or only that, or it has to be 
of this school or this attitude, and mm-hmm. and that's just the opposite of the the, the advice that you need to become a, a professional writer that loves what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise, just get a job at the factory. Mm-hmm. So this way, otherwise, because it'll feel like that. But if you're doing the the work that you want to do and you're writing the stories you want to write. You get up more happily in the morning, even if you have a job to go to, and you you know you have to work uh, when you get off from work, or you work weekends, or two or three days a week, whatever it is that works for you. You still feel better about it if you're not trying to chase some, uh, you know, something that's popular at the moment. Because by the time you get it finished, other people have already written those stories. They've rewritten whatever is the, the most popular thing at, at the time, or they have their own take on it, which is, you know, if they're really good, then they can actually make a career of it. But mostly everybody's just copying and repeating. So write your story. That's that's really great advice. Uh, I, I think that's why one of the main reasons I want to have you on was for that reason is, is that you kind of you go against the grain, but you're also a professional that's done it. You know, you've been paid for your work. Yeah. Um, you, you, right. You've done it for. Yeah, I make, I make a living at it and I make a good one and, and I and I make it by doing what I want to do. You know, I've been, I've been fortunate. I, I always like, I was just a boy from Gladewater. I'm a country kid and I was an incredibly, you know, I still am a voracious reader. I mean, I, and that's the other thing. Writing is just one component. You have to read. If you only read a little bit, you might be able to sell some stuff, but you'll never have much about your work that makes you individual or unique or interesting. Mm-hmm. And life is so much fun when reading is a big part of it. I mean, it, it varies from time to time, but I generally read anywhere from two to three books a week, you know, and, and there, there are times when, for whatever reason, I may be only reading two or three a month because maybe I'm, I'm watching a lot of movies and TV shows or reading comics or, uh, you know, those things too are influences. Or sometimes I'm just, I'm traveling and I, so I'm, I'm but any time I travel, I work, I write, and I usually read something all the time. Uh, but the average for me is about two or three books a week. And I think that that, even if you don't read that much, you need to be reading constantly. You, and you need to be reading things that you love. And when you first start out, you might read some things that you might think you don't love because you don't know until you read them. Mm-hmm. You say, well, this person, Faulkner, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm more like a James Bond kind of guy. But if you read Faulkner and you read Hemingway and you read Scott Fitzgerald and Steinbeck and Flannery O'Connor and Edith Wharton and, you know, all of these different writers, they're classics for a reason. Mm-hmm. Not all of them may appeal to you, but you may discover that they make you a better writer, even if what you want to write is more genre material. Because And some of the best writers are genre writers. You know, Ray Bradbury was, was, was a great writer. Richard Matheson. You read all of these different people, and they sometimes they give you different tools to put in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. They open different doors. And so if you're if you say I only read crime fiction, well that's that's okay. You know you certainly that's wrong with that. But on the other hand, you get tired of reading one thing, and you can ruin your love for something by not being willing to branch out and read other things and to return to that. And sometimes by reading other things, it you will find that what you thought you wanted to do or what you thought you enjoyed is not, or at least it's not limited to just that. You know, when I was growing up, the thing that impressed me most as a reader, when I was a child, I read all kinds of things. You know, Jack London, Mark Twain, all these people. Some of, and all of those people, at one point or another, wrote either fantasy or science fiction. 
But fantasy and science fiction and were my and horror were my biggest loves, and I still love them. But what they did is that uh, I got solidified in them for a little while, and then when I started branching out and reading other things, I actually found that I was much more picky about the science fiction, fantasy, and horror I read, and I enjoyed it more because I had learned enough to where I actually could enjoy it on a different level than what I had before. Mm. And, you know, I think that's the importance of reading as well as writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. I, I, I'm I, I'm actually shocked when writers say they don't read anything, and you know I've, I've heard even Stephen King say yeah. you got to read a lot and you got to write a lot. That's kind of yeah. Well, he's he's right. You know, and I've heard people almost say it proudly. Well, I, I just don't read anything. Well, I, I pity you. And even <laughs> if you are a, a good, even if you manage somehow, and most don't, there are a few that maybe do mm-hmm. manage to be a, a good writer. Maybe you're just influenced by television or film. Okay, mm-hmm. maybe you're pretty good, but you know what? You have cut a major enthusiasm out of your life without even knowing it yep. uh, because there's just nothing like reading a book once in a while you know I'll, I'll go through a period where I just need some time where I'm I'm listening to music or watching movies or mm-hmm. because those are influences too I listen to radio shows which can teach you a whole lot about writing the old radio shows mm-hmm. and so all of those things are influences for me mm-hmm. but there is nothing like reading and if I've been off from reading, you know, books, and I've been, and I'm never not reading, but whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and I, I the thing that really always makes me uh, kind of irritated is the idiot who says, I only read nonfiction, as if somehow that elevates them, right. but it does right. not, and I love nonfiction, I read a lot of it, yeah. but the thing is, is that fiction is closer to the truth, because it is about how you feel about things emotionally, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily you take the story literally for the truth, but you take its, its uh, impetus and its emotion. It's about the heart, you know, at least that symbolically, about what's going on inside humans. Right. And nonfiction isn't always that way. Nonfiction is also informative, but nonfiction, especially if you're reading something politically, political or Social, it is of the moment. It may well be entertaining. It may well be interesting. It may well give you some insight. But it is no necessarily, it's not necessarily any less fictional from its source. The, the information and the facts may be correct, but it's all still an interpreta- interpretation of the writer, as it should be. That's what makes it fascinating. That's how we learn new things. But what I'm saying is you, just because it's nonfiction doesn't mean that you're, you're absolutely, literally getting the tr- truth. You must have read my mind. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of your books because, you know, one of the things you do well is you, you talk about social issues. You know, you talk about, you know, um, mm-hmm. race and politics and sexuality and, and through, you know, fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's the best medium to kind of, you know, voice yeah. your opinions like you're saying. And so talk a little bit about that. You know, you grew up, you know, obviously you're a little bit older. So, you know, through the 60s and, yeah. and you know, all the crazy stuff going on then. And, um, but you know, how that comes out right. in your stories. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, when, when I was coming up, it was during that era of civil rights. It was the, uh, the Vietnam war. Uh, it was women's rights. And this is, you know, a little bit, probably a little bit more than these women's rights really became, a, um, more significant. And, uh, gay rights were, were at least starting to become, um, uh, something that was aware, people were aware of. And all of these things were going on. And when I, I, it's just like when people talk about the, the baby boomers, that's who I think of. And the fact is that the people who were concerned with those things and the things that uh, later led to, uh, you know, there's people that are really ultra-concerned 
conservatives that have no idea how much liberty and rights they have because of those social issues mm-hmm. in the 60s. And, you know, it started before that in the 50s. And, it, and even, you know, you could pick somebody way back that was doing that. But the 60s was a boom in time. And Martin Luther King and, and uh, J- JFK and Robert Kennedy and all of these people were affecting culture. But like John Kennedy made us aware of education and science. And he was the first president in my lifetime that looked like a young man, that looked different, and was, uh, you, you know, he was just unique, and his, you know, his family was attractive, and, it, and yet he was pushing this agenda for going, going into space, going to the moon, uh, to, you know, science was very important, especially after World War II, because of the atomic bomb, suddenly science became highly significant, because science is what created that, for better or worse, and... So during that era, you know, I was very interested in, I was an anti-Vietnam person, and I think that considering that we, you know, Vietnam is now one of our trade partners and people visit it for vacation, I don't think the world failed because we lost the Vietnam War or pulled out of the Vietnam War. What we lost was 54,000 soldiers, and ultimately they were brave soldiers doing their duty, but I don't think they died for anything significant other than our politics. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the way I felt then, and uh, I, re- you know, I refused to go. I nearly was sent to prison. It's a long story, but I ended up with a one why, and I would not, I would not uh, become a conscientious objector because I said under certain circumstances, uh, according to what the, their rules were for conscientious objector, I didn't fit. I would have fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have fought. To, I would fight to defend myself. You know those sort of things. But I was opposed to that war because I politically and socially, I thought it was a mistake. And I didn't think I was doing my country the proper service. I thought of myself as a patriot for not going. And uh, I was for civil rights when people were having black people walk up to water fountains that said colored, uh, right next to one that said white, and bathrooms that said white and colored. And uh, black men that had to step off the sidewalk and take their hat off and look at the ground when a white woman walked by, and so on and so on. Not being able to go into a restaurant or a store to buy something, you know, having to go to a back door, uh, all of that stuff, you know, people want to try to forget it, but it was real. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it influenced me in the way I saw the world and the way I wrote. And I'm certainly not trying to say our entire generation felt the same way as I did, but a lot of them did. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have gone on to be just the opposite. But for me, I wanted to express that in stories, and I didn't know how. And I kept trying to sit down and write the story that was going to be profound and talk about those uh, situations, and it always just seemed stilted, so I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I once heard a story, and I don't know if that, that is true. It may be an apocryphal story, and it was about one of my favorite science fiction writers, primarily a short story writer, Theodore Sturgeon. And he was trying to write something about the McCarthy era, and he wanted to say something important. And he went to his science fiction editor, H.L. Gold, and Gold said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, I can't. I've got these things I want to say, and I just, you know, I can't just write a science fiction story. I want to write something important. He said, well, i got some advice for you to how to do it. He said, well, what's that? He said, here's. Here's a story. You start this story. You're, you're, and, and this is kind of how I remember it. And, and like I said, the story may be apocryphal, but it's important. And he said, look, uh, you, you, you're, you're standing on the corner, and this bus pulls up, and this beautiful woman gets off. And, and 
the characters at Caesar is just amazed with her, and he finds himself following her without even really thinking about it, and then just finishes the story from there. And Sturgeon supposedly said, well, what? But I, I don't understand. He said, just, just trust me. And so then Sturgeon began to realize it wasn't even the storyline that he gave him. The idea was if something was on your mind and you wanted to talk about it, you could talk about it through all kinds of science fiction or fantasy or horror or crime. In other words, whatever kind of story you wrote, if you really wanted that to come out, you would find that vehicle. And I found that with um, Savage Season. When I And I found it with the drive-in. I found it with a number of stories, the magic wagon. But Savvy Season was the one that latched in my characters, Hap and Leonard, because I took my own experiences. And uh, the story is not meant to be, you know, a literal examination of what happened to me in my life. But it took elements of my life, my, biogra- my autobiography, so to speak. <laughs> and I took uh, things from events that it happened to me and I walked them into the story and I began to realize I was talking about the Vietnam War. I was talking about the loss of idealism. I was talking about how the 80s had become the era of greed and how so many of these lofty ideals had been pushed back. I was talking about sexuality and how people could be friends even if they you know, had different sexual orientation or they were of a different race. Uh, and I was talking about people that were blue collar. They weren't uh, you know, rich people living in a penthouse. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a different kind of uh, story for me. And, uh, well, actually, it was, you know, same kind of characters I'd written about before, but everything just sort of clicked. And uh, so when I wrote Mucho Mojo, Two Bear Mambo, Bad Chili, I was doing that without really honestly sitting down and saying, well, I'm going to write a story about racial mm-hmm. uh, conflict or, mm-hmm. or sexuality. I, was, I never did that because I didn't want those things to become the flag mm-hmm. that was pinned on top of the story. I wanted the story and the characters mm-hmm. to pull you along, and I wanted most of what I had to say mm-hmm. to come out of the situations that could just be entertaining. You know, they could be crime, they could be science fiction or whatever. In the case of Half a Winter, they were crime or suspense, some mystery elements. But I found that what became, what I was able to do was able to entertain and get across these thoughts and ideas in a way that I might not have been uh, had I just decided to try to write, quote, serious, unquote, fiction, because in my own way, I was doing that, and at the same time, I was writing entertaining fiction. Mm-hmm. Now, I, was, I handled those things perhaps more deeply and more literary and still entertaining in books like The Bottom, The Fine Dark Line, Sunset and Sawdust, mm-hmm. All the Earth Thrown to the Sky, uh, you know, uh, some of those, those particular novels were perhaps more quote, literary, unquote, but, but uh, you know, I learned by then I could still write the more literary novel and be entertaining to use uh, the vehicle of crime or suspense or mystery or science fiction, what, what have you, to make those points. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that everything I have written, novel, short story, otherwise has been about making those points. Some are just whimsical mm-hmm. and fun, or they're making different kinds of points. But it's interesting to find that when you really have something you want to talk about and you really want to say, that you can do it. I'm not interested in writing stories about, uh, you, you, at least not consistently, stories about uh, you know, the vampire who owns a, uh, a floral shop. You know, <laughs> that doesn't mean I don't want to write some fun stories. My daughter and I were writing some stuff about, in fact, a super normal or supernatural detective. And they're light and they're fun. Mm-hmm. But 
I find that little things slip in there too. My daughter and I are little things about women's rights and uh, women's friendship. And, mm-hmm. and that's another thing that's important in a lot of my books is friendship and male, mm-hmm. male bonding. You know, how, how does that work in this day and mm-hmm. time? And, you know, all those things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to kind of rattle on now. But uh, the, the no, thing is, is that when you want to put something in your work, you can't. No, and I think you're, I mean, you're onto something. I think, you know, if people read your work and, you know, I've read a lot of it, it's, you know, it's not preachy. It's not, you know, front and center. It's just, you, you reveal these things through character, through action, through conversation. You know, I've been reading a fine, right. fine dark line again. And, um, I love, love the story. I mean, you, you deal with, you know, all kinds of, you know, things with race and class and, but you also, like you said, you deal with friendship. Right. And, um, and, and what, what that looks right. like, I, I think what, you know, what's interesting, I'm, a, I'm, you know, almost 40 years old. I have four kids and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting to watch your kids. You know, my oldest is almost 11 and, you know, friendships mm-hmm. come so easy for kids. And then it's like, I don't know what happens, yeah. but we get older. And then all of a sudden we don't know how to like be friends with people that are different than us. You know, they don't even because, think because we, <laughs> they start to have opinions. You yeah. Know, people yeah. start to have opinions. Their, their background begins. And, you know, there are some people whose opinions are so severe, you can't be friends with right. them. But even right. if you would, would like to try, you just you just can't make that jump, or you mm-hmm. can't stand being around them, or they can't stand being around you. But um, it, it is, it's a valuable commodity. And, and, and even if it is, most of us go through life, and even if we have good friends, we lose them. You know, the time changes us, and uh, situations change us, mm-hmm. and... You know, I, I've had very, very wonderful friends, and then just one day you realize we're not seeing each other anymore, and you don't know why even. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it happens. But, you know, some of the, the most valuable things in my life are the friends that have stayed, that I've been able to stay friends with, and some of them are people I don't see very often. But we keep in contact, and when we get together, it's like we just, you know, walked out of the room and walked back in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's important, and I think male friends are important. And, and you know, you always you have these guys that yeah, guys don't talk much. Well, mm-hmm. my friends, you can't shut them up. <laughs> you know, we talk all the time. That's all we do. We talk, we rattle on. We we sometimes have very important things we want to tell one another, and sometimes we're just frivolous and making fart jokes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually think that's important too. I don't think mm-hmm. you know. I'm I'm all for. You know all of the the things that are going on in the world that are that I think are positive, like uh, gay rights or uh, you, you know uh, women's rights, all of those things. But I think you you got to avoid becoming so politically correct mm-hmm. that you can't have a sense of humor, mm-hmm. that you can't laugh about things, that you can't discuss things openly, or that you have to sit down and make sure every word you say is inoffensive. It, it, and in fiction, this is especially true because I use some very offensive words in fiction, but they aren't words I use in my life. I don't go around calling people those kinds of names, but right. the characters in the books yep. that are sometimes negative characters do. I hear that in my life, and the idea that I'm going to sort of iron out all the wrinkles in, in humanity is stupid. And so I try to make real people. But I also try to make stories that uh, I think express my point. But they always, they don't always come out well, because in real life they don't always come out well. No matter how politically correct you are and how wonderful you think you are and how connected to, uh, to things you think you are, it doesn't always turn out that way. And then 20 years from now, somebody looks back and says, I can't believe you were like that. I can't believe you thought that. So every 20, 30 years or something, you get get a gut check because stuff that was every day is not anymore. And then people start saying, well, look, I don't want to be offensive to women. I don't want to step over the 
line, but gee, where where is the line? Sometimes if I ask somebody for a day, am I and and they take offense to that? Is that you know something I shouldn't have done? Is uh, you know whatever. And then the other extreme is the jackass that thinks that they've got the right to put their hands on people, or you know, no matter who it is. And so I mean, a lot of this is uh, you know it, it can be it can be, it's less cut and dry, and I think that's true of mm-hmm. most. Things. And I think it's a problem that I see in, in life and as well as in writing these days where the writing is so obviously everybody is so perfect on one side and so, so uh, negative on the other side that it doesn't work because the best and most interesting villains are very much like real life. They're the people you may not want to be around, but they're the same people that might go out and kill somebody that they've been hired to kill and then go home to their wife and kids and pet their dog. Mm-hmm. So it's very confusing. Even Hitler liked dogs, and he was a vegetarian, you know, mm-hmm. which a lot of people think somehow is 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 uh, you know very important uh, that you be a vegetarian and you like dogs. I I love dogs, and I, I'm kind of a big vegetable fan, though I'm not a vegetarian. But that doesn't mean I'm a good person necessarily. I like to think right. I am, but Hitler did those things, and he definitely was not a good right. person. Right. No, that's good. I, I I that's what I love about fiction. I mean, I think it's so versatile as far as a medium for you know, exploring different yeah. ideas and, and through, like you're saying, through, right. through real people. I mean, the, you know, I, I right. think when you create a character that's just so, you know, perfect or so, it's like, that's not, that's not my neighbor. That's not a real person. Like that's, no, you know, no, you know, you know, when, when I, I make me think of Huckleberry Finn, one of my favorite novels, I saw a thing in Esquire. They said, Oh, this, you know, he, Chuck Twain was a racist and he was, a, and it's ridiculous. You know, Twain may have been of his time, but he damn sure wasn't a racist. He was way far ahead on that particular thing. And Huckleberry Finn proves that. And, and although there are certain probably limitations he had to be published, uh, the, the book was one of those I read when a kid, as a kid that changed my, my view of things I saw around me. You know, you don't know any better when you're a child, but uh, I read this and I thought, wow, when, when Huckleberry Finn says that, he knows that the, that the Christian thing to do is to turn Jim in, but that, you know, just he's just going to go to hell. He's not going to turn him in. Uh, you know, things like that really struck me. And it, it wasn't that you, you have an immediate epiphany, but you're having these little workings inside your brain, and then one day you just wake up going, oh, I can get it. And uh, I saw this thing where they were talking about removing Huckleberry Finn or mm-hmm. taking out certain words. He has to use those certain words because, A, they were of that time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and actually, people that were anti-racist used those same words. Right. They were common. When I was growing up, you used to hear them from people who were civil rights people because, it, you know, language changes. You can't spend all your time trying to condemn people in the past. If you, right. I saw something like we have the World Fantasy Award was was uh, Howard uh, Lovecraft, and uh, <clears throat> they decided to eliminate the Howard Award, which was a statue of him because he was a racist, and he was, mm-hmm. and he said some horrible things. Of course, he did marry a Jewish lady, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, he wrote some of the greatest, most influential fiction. And I have to say, I'm not a big fan. I'm a fan more of the people he influenced, but Stephen King, me, a lot of us have written Lovecraftian fiction, but that doesn't mean I embrace racism, right. and, and it doesn't mean that, and, it, and if you're going to do that, then you've got to get rid of the Ford, because the Ford car, you know, yeah. you go back to Henry Ford, not one of the great, great guys, and some of these guys, you know, supported the Nazis and uh, thought that they were doing the right thing, and if you start making that list, 
then you need to quit using most of the products you use. Yeah. And you, you know, there's a line that you have to draw. Now, if somebody does that in the present, yeah. then we have a we have a new understanding. But you can't throw the past away. Like Edgar Rice Burroughs is one of the most influential writers I ever read. But if I pick him up now, I, I see racism, I see sexism, uh, you know, um, among other things, uh, even a sort of uh, so pro-American sometimes that you feel that it's anti-communist, which was suitable for the times because that's what people thought and and the communists weren't doing very nice things. But I'm saying that the books are dated in some ways and they're dated also in some of their views. But those books were some of the most influential books I ever read. So the, the kid that was me at 9, 10, and 11 is forever in love with those books, but not for racism and not for sexism, but for imagination. So you can get so politically correct that you can just uh, you know fool yourself into thinking that you're so highly advanced and everybody else is an idiot. And that, you know, that's not a good thing either. And, and I think sometimes it's, people are more concerned with what others perceive them. You know, that I is it. They are. They concern with what others perceive. I don't want to be perceived yeah, as this person or this side of history or whatever. And, right. and like you're saying, we, well, yeah. I mean, we can't go back in a time machine and say, yeah. okay, we got to get rid of this guy, this award, this thing. This right. com- this company. Right. I mean, w- we won't have anything left. I mean, nobody's right. perfect. Everybody falls on their face all the well, time. Well, you know, without with if, if we could go back in time and get rid of Bloodcraft and say, yeah, Rice Burroughs, who really was fairly mild and just of his mm-hmm. time, you know. But if you got rid of all those people, you would also eliminate Ray Bradbury's writing. You would eliminate Stephen King. You would probably you would eliminate me for whatever right. that's worth. You would <laughs> eliminate so many writers, and, and and you know, you even go back to. Uh, highly literary writers. I mean, you you read Hemingway, and some of it is just saying this is what happened. These are how people talk. So it's not all racist, but there's a racism uh, in his work, and there and there's certainly things that uh, you know wouldn't be accepted now, wouldn't be cared for now. But on the other hand, he was a magnificent writer, and a lot of that is just how people talk. He's just saying this is it. Look at it. You know, this is what's going on. Uh, but if you did that, you would eliminate so many things that are wonderful because we, we were inspired. If you'd eliminated, you know, uh, Ford, Henry Ford, uh, cars may never have developed the way they did. Right. Uh, and, you know, you can do the same thing with so many different uh, architects and uh, artists, you name it. Mm-hmm. You can't look at those things like that. Now, if somebody's alive, like Roman Polanski, I would give him the time of day. And I hope he's arrested and sent to prison for the rest of his life. Right. He's profiting now. Right. He's alive now. Yep. But you can't look back on those things. And, and you also have to realize that most of the population was in agreement with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Because in that era, that, that's what they were doing. You know? Right. Yeah, no, well, we'll 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 set this aside. We won't we won't solve the world's problems today, but uh, no, we, uh, we won't. But 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 it's important to discuss it in relationship to fiction. Yes, even if your views are different than mine, you yep. have the right to write about them. Yeah, and you have the right to put them put them in in prose. And it's it it prose is a living thing. It's not about pretty manners. Right, right. No, I I like that. So uh, just uh, I'd like to just uh, ask you a couple of questions on some more on the craft side, because, you know, one of the reasons sure. I wanted to have you on the show is you've actually encouraged and written a lot about, you know, write, writing and, and the craft. But you have a very straightforward um, what I call like a creative hard hat, you know, putting on the hard hat every day, yeah. punching the clock, going to work. Um, and you talk, about, 
you know, not making excuses. You know, I don't have any ideas. Yeah. Uh, I I, need, I want to write the story, yeah. but you never put it down. I mean, talk a little bit about that kind of your your just kind of no nonsense uh, writer uh, perspective. Well, you know, I, I can only tell you what I do, and I can and I arrive here through experiment, so I've done it differently from time to time, and you know, I might change in the future. Who knows? Probably not, because I've been doing this for like twenty five years. Mm-hmm. And um, even that said, there are occasionally slight variations, but generally, this is the way I work. I believe, I don't believe in waiting for the muse because I don't believe there is one because I believe it's you. Mm-hmm. And I don't wait on, I don't believe in being uh, inspired, which is a, a, just another word of saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is if you do it regularly, you're inspired every day. Mm-hmm. Those times when you feel like you aren't inspired, you probably write just as well as when you are. Mm-hmm. But when you get used to getting up and doing your work, uh, then you suddenly find that these little windows open and this kind of light comes through on a day-to-day basis. In other words, there's your muse, there's your inspiration, and I get it nearly all the time. But what I do is I get up in the morning, I do the coffee, do the you know, do whatever I, I, I need to get ready, you know, have my have a, a zone bar or whatever it is, and then I go sit at my desk and I start writing. And I write three hours a day, roughly. I don't measure my time. I don't look at the watch. It comes out like that. Sometimes it's less than that. But I have a goal. I, I reach three to five pages a day, and uh, I'm very rare that I've not made that. And I find that's comfortable. I find I can do that relatively easy, anywhere from one to three hours. And uh, I sit down and I write, and when I get done with the three to five pages, if I feel that I've got more in I just keep writing. But usually it never goes past three hours, very rarely. And so when I get done for the day, um, I have not only written those pages, I have polished those pages, gone back over them. Mm-hmm. And then the next day when I get up, I still have some gas in the tank. And uh, I pick up right where I was before. I usually read like, uh, two or three pages of the day before and do any corrections I see. Mm-hmm. And then I just move on, and I keep doing that. And on some days I'll get 10 or 15 pages, and they'll be pretty close to the way I want them. And, uh, you know, now and again, you miss it. You have to go back and revise more. But generally, I just do one serious draft all the way through. But that doesn't mean I'm not really doing lots of corrections as I go. Mm-hmm. And when I get through with that, I do a polish. And then I'm done. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, proofreading and stuff like that comes later. And you may find something. And you may even find, oh, gee, this section here needs more. But I'm 90 five percent on the money when I write the story the first time Mm -hmm. and uh, it's the story I wanted to tell and uh, I find that it's the joy of writing the thing about having this 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 kind of schedule three to five pages a day you don't burn out Mm -hmm. you know you're not doing 20 pages one day working nine hours a day Mm -hmm. and then the next day you don't feel like doing anything some days I'll get those 20 pages but they'll be in that short time generally Mm -hmm. and so for me I'm a hero every day so when I wake up, I still, and I've also still got gas in the tank because I didn't just wear my brain down. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like I, I left just a little fuel to ignite the next day every day. And so when I get up, I work I pretty much five to seven days a week, generally seven. Sometimes I take off a couple of days because I'm doing something for the family or I'm traveling. But you can almost generally find me seven days a week. And when I travel, I take my laptop. And I do the same thing. Sometimes my hours have to change a little bit because I may be on a plane. I may be in a hotel. I may have to get up in the morning and go do book signings in Italy or France or wherever they sent me. And I'll find another moment, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes, or while my wife's taking a shower, we're getting ready to go out. 
I'll, I'll, I'll write then. And it still comes out about the same. And every once in a while, I'll have a day where I'll decide to go back and work in the afternoon or night. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And if I do, I just fine. I'm feeling good. I go ahead and I, I do that. Frequently, though, when I do that, what I've ended up doing is I'm actually working on something else. I've got my main project I do in the morning, and then I might have these others that I work down again. More frequently, I'll get up in the morning, and I'll write, and I'll look up and go, well, I've been working an hour and a half, and I've got nine pages, and I feel good about those nine pages. So I'm just going to work on this short story that I have or, or this other novel that I'm playing around with. So I'll open that file and work on that for a little while. I might not. You know, I don't feel obligated to get the three to five pages on that. I'll just, you know, I may re reread it, make a little revision. I may move it on a paragraph or two. And then when I finish the main project, somehow that project generally moves into the slot. And it becomes my main project. Mm -hmm. And if I haven't finished it, I, I got up one night and uh, was in a mood to write. I just woke I couldn't sleep. I thought, well, you know what, I'll just go write. It's a little bit outside the schedule, but I don't fight it. So I went up and I looked in my files and I found, I found six complete stories I hardly remembered writing because I was doing them part-time. And I looked at them, a couple of them needed some revision. I revised them and I sold all six of those stories and I didn't even hardly remember writing them because I was doing them just when you know I had a few minutes here and there. So to me, it's about being consistent. It's about not overdoing it. Uh, it's, a, it's about living having time for something other than writing because it makes you a better writer if you don't have the stink of the library on everything you do. Mm -hmm. You need to go out, have friends, go to lunch, hang out with your family. You don't have to do anything dramatic. You don't have to climb a mountain or sail across an ocean on a log. Mm -hmm. But what you need to do is be something other than just a reader. Reader is important, as we've discussed earlier, and I, you know how much I believe in it. But I also believe that you have to have another life so that you know how people sound, how people move, uh, what's going on in the world. Certain things that make me mad help me write. Certain things that make me happy make, help me write. All of those things are important. So to me, it's not about overdoing it. It's about consistently doing it. Can you say uh, something about revising as you go? Because I'm a big revise as you go proponent, but can you can you give your angle why you do it yeah. that way? Well, I, I can tell you, especially start out with a typewriter, is that I, I had friends, they were so proud of how many drafts they did, you know, <laughs> and I thought, well, see, I'll, I'll have to do multiple drafts, so I would write the story. And of course, with a typewriter, it was even more necessary to do those multiple drafts mm -hmm. because... Once it was on the paper, it was there, and if it was messed up, you had to retype it, revise it. So when, the, when I started using a computer, I, I would write maybe two or three pages. I'd stop, go back, and reread those, and I would revise as I went. Well, I might not nail everything, and I might decide later on down 80 pages in that I need to go back to page 40 and put this line in because it reinforced something I thought of on page 80. Mm -hmm. But I would do nearly all of my revisions as I wrote. But, you know, there's no if, if I'd had it, if it had been paper and I'd had a trash can beside the desk, it might be filled every day. Mm -hmm. But since it was a computer and I could go in and do that easily, I had no how much revision I actually do. But I'm a big believer in, the, in doing your revisions as you go, mm -hmm. which gives you a fairly consistent and good draft when you finish. Mm -hmm. And then you can go back through after you, you know, I like to get about halfway through and reread it, get momentum. Uh, you know, for the rest of it, and then I go back and reread the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, but that's but by then I'm not rewriting the entire book. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it makes mine better. 
It might make yours better. Uh, but for me, it's just the opposite because it gives you too many things to think about, too many ideas. Oh, I can always write another draft. It also makes you sloppy because yeah. you think, I can always do another draft. I'm going to do another draft of this yeah. anyway. Yeah. Now, if you have an idea that's burning, I'm not telling you not to just let it flow and just go with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's got to happen. But at some point, pretty soon, you need to stop and go back and start polishing because you'll get yourself off in the a field somewhere and you'll find that you have so many revisions that you'll be so uh, upset about it that it can actually, well, at least I will, and then it just discourages me. Yeah. But if I, if I have those days when I'm burning and I'm writing 10 pages, I try to make sure that by the end of the week I, I've gone back and revised those again to make sure that they're they're still good. So that when I get through, I'm not having to spend another a similar amount of time rewriting an entire uh, book. You know, I'm just not going to do it. And I also I do that. I take the energy out of the book. I want it to read as clear as I can. I try to write very succinct prose. I try to write like people talk. I, I try to capture that particular tone, but. I, I find that you also have a certain energy in your work when you when you do it early on, and if you keep polishing it, you can just you know you can iron out all the wrinkles, but you can just burn a hole right through it with the iron, so yep. to speak. Yep. And so nobody cares anymore. So you've got you've got to find the story you want to tell. You've got to be consistent about showing up. You've got to polish as you go, and then when you get done, you do a, a kind of overall polish. And you know if there's a section that just doesn't work, of course you agree with. But if you spend all your time doing multiple drafts, then you're spending all your time doing multiple drafts. You're not really necessarily doing better work. Right. Now, I know there are other people who will disagree with me, and that's fine. If something else works for you, that's good. Mm-hmm. But I also know a lot of people that are still doing drafts on a novel now five and six years later when yep. they should have already written yep. six novels. Yep. Yeah, I, I wanted you to explain all that because my first novel uh, – I had revised it so many times and it was such a mess uh, that when I went back into yeah. it, I just wanted to, you know, hang myself. So it, yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's something about that. I mean, that's why I wanted you to describe your, cause I've, I've switched to, I'm a reviser as you go, because when I come back in, it's like, if it's such a mess, it just discourages you. It doesn't keep, yes. keep you yeah, going. It's such a mess, right? It's such a mess because if you haven't, haven't done those things, you know, the idea you realize, but like, I'm going to have to rewrite this completely. And some people think, well, you know, I'm doing that and it's going to be better. And, and I'm sure in some cases yeah. that's true. Yeah. But I know so many people over the years from, you know, reading manuscripts and stuff like that, that just make things worse because they yeah. have too many decisions to make. Then there's too many ways to go and they'll take a piece out of this one and a piece out of that one. Yeah. But the problem is, is that the energy may be different from the different drafts. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking it if it works for a writer, but I'm just saying for me, it doesn't. And, and I think you could correct me if I'm wrong, cause you're the pro, but, uh, you know, I think you suck the voice out of the story. Um, when you, when you rewrite too Well, that's kind of what I was saying. That's yeah, what I meant by too much, too much ironing it out. Yeah, you iron it out, you burn a hole through it. And then what happens is that you want some of that imperfection of voice. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you want to literally, you know, right. do things wrong or do things where they, you know, are unreadable or whatever. But the, what makes a difference in a writer who sells and a writer who has impact and a writer sometimes that lasts is voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, like you remember Ray Bradbury because he's Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't remember a story of him, and of course I do remember many, but even right. if you don't, you remember that voice. It's the same yep. thing with Mark Twain. Yep. You know, it's the same way with Hemingway. It's the same thing with F. Scott Fitzgerald. And uh, Steinbeck. I mean, you can name a lot of those writers, but the reason you remember them is their voice most of the time. There's some ex- 
exceptions. There's some writers that you remember them for, you know, the storyline itself because it's just so interesting. But voice is also the same thing as character in a way because the 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 book itself is got has got to be a character. And there, are, like when I wrote the drive-in, I wrote a book which I thought had the same kind of like B-movie characters in it. And what I tried to do to offset that, and I did that purposely because of what's the nature of the book, but I tried to offset that by making the prose and the approach to the book so unique that the book itself is the character. Mm. And and if you do that, that has an extra impact. And if you're also doing something where it's not only the, the book that's the character, but you know, you're building characters inside out, and the story comes out of them instead of you make it forcing them into the story, then you do better. And all of that is connected to voice, the writer's voice. And uh, how to find that is sometimes difficult. I think I found it during the time I wrote those 90 stories because I was writing like everybody else. But when I finished those 90 stories, I suddenly just started telling stories more uh, akin to how I talked. Now, the first half a dozen or so, I didn't quite have that nailed. But by the time I got into the early 80s, uh, you know, I, I sold first piece in 73, which was nonfiction. So I, I sold a number of nonfiction pieces, and I, I, I sold every nonfiction piece I wrote. I didn't find those particularly difficult. But when I switched to fiction, it was. And when I wrote those, and I wrote uh, stories before those 90 stories, but those 90 stories taught me a lot. And that I just sort of, by the time I got to the end of those, my voice would start to surface out of that morass. And then within another six or seven, seven stories, it was closer. And then by the early 80s, I, you know, I, I kind of had found it. And that's, that's a key right there, is finding that voice so that your work sounds like yours. And if you do too many drafts, sometimes you take that right out of it. And, and I think, you know, you said earlier with writing those 90 stories, you, you were just kind of mimicking what you liked or what you was on TV or what, you know, but then, yeah. you know, you start going, Oh yeah. no, that's not me. That's just mimicking what I like. And then, you know, well, well, right. the, the beauty of writing is that it's your voice. It's your angle. It's your perspective. Like you, we're all writing it the sure same, same stories. It's just, it's just, it sounds yeah. different because it's you. And, and I think that's where writers it's get, right. yeah. And that's where writers right. get stumbled up and, and hung up. Is they're just really going, well, I don't sound like Stephen King. Well, don't sound, you shouldn't just sound like no, you. No, <laughs> you know? no, And, and yeah. they get frustrated. And, you know, yeah. Right. I, and you know, the thing too is I think of myself as a storyteller and, and a storyteller, what makes a storyteller unique, and I, I would say Twain's a great example of a storyteller, is that it's the voice that carries you along. And the way I always look at that is I say, look, you have this joke and you give it to five people to tell it. There's going to be people there that will tell that joke, and it may be the funniest joke in the world, and nobody will laugh because they don't have the angle of attack. They don't have the voice. They don't have the attitude to make that joke play. But there will be one or two there that will tell it and maybe tell it somewhat differently, maybe string it out, maybe shorten it up. Maybe they'll have a, you know, the, the, the way they handle themselves will be totally different. It's sort of like a stand-up comedian, you would say. But it's the voice and the attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, when Robin Williams told a joke, it could be really, really funny or told a story. You know, I, my, my favorite comedians are people who tell stories, not jokes. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it is their tone. It is their attitude that makes it different. So some people can tell the same story. And it's not going to be good. Mm -hmm. And somebody else, someone else can tell that story, and it's great. I mean, a lot of the stories that I write, they've been there before. You know, the, it, you, you can't help but that because there's only so many stories. There, are, you know, I, I think I've 
had some unique ideas in my lifetime. I think the drive-in is one of them, and I think I've certainly had a number of short stories like that and a few other novels. But really what makes it unique is your voice because your voice gives it a different tonality so that even if you've heard that story before, you still want to keep reading. Mm -hmm. And then there's always different ways to play with what's what's come before. Mm -hmm. We've all read crime stories, and we've all seen the number of uh, ways those crime stories are approached. But if you're interested in the characters and that voice is a character unto itself, then you're more likely to stick with it and be entertained by it and sometimes get some other essence of it that, you know, was totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, so speaking of voice, um, right now you have, uh, you know, your Happen Leonard series uh, of books are on TV, Sundance Channel. Great, great yeah. series. Now, I had read the books. And so, you know, I go to the TV show with certain expectations. Now, as a, a yeah. writer, a creator of the, the books for the show, what, what's been kind of your surprises? What, you know, what do you like about the show? What do you not like about the show? I mean, how, how does that work mm-hmm. when you kind of have this picture? I mean, you, you've lived with these characters for years and years and years, and then you see them on TV. Right. I mean, what, what's kind of going through your head when you, when you, when you look at it? Well, I, I'll be honest with you, it's mixed. And there are some days when I'm, I'm happier with it than I am with others. I mean, if you ask me what my overall opinion is, I think it's very good. Mm-hmm. I think I've had three wonderful seasons. If they don't renew it, then I've had three wonderful seasons. Mm-hmm. And if they do renew it, I hope it continues at the same level that it has. I was also a co-executive producer, and, and my joke is I get to say anything I want, but they get to do anything <laughs> they want. But I, I have had, I've had things that I've just absolutely loved and things I've just absolutely disliked. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't uh, go out and rail against all the things that I, I dislike, except primarily with, uh, you know, the people that are working on the show. Mm-hmm. And like I said, sometimes they pay attention to me and sometimes they don't. But I, I think they make terrible choices sometimes. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I think they make better choices most of the time. Mm-hmm. I think James and Michael are very good in their roles. Are they, and people always say, are they what you envision? The answer to that is no, because I made those characters up. So they're in my head, and nobody will ever fit that as an actor. No actor can bring the internalization of Hap to the screen because the books are written in first person. So it's his viewpoint. And you know, I don't even know if he's a, if he's a reliable narrator because he's telling you what he feels and what he sees. He's reasonably reliable, but he's also got a little bit of that storyteller in him. So some things that happen may seem bigger and and, and brighter or darker than they really were. And that kind of thing's hard to do when you bring it to a screen. But I do think James and Mike's relationship is essentially happening, and that that's the key to that series. And I've been fortunate they brought great actors in like Irma Hall and Lou Gossett and Mm -hmm. Brian Dennehy, you know, and Jimmy Simpson and Christina Hendricks, Mm -hmm. Polly McIntosh, Bill Sage, you know, Neil Sandland, Jeff Pope. I mean, all of these people and there's others. And, you know, I I, I tried to name them all. I'd be here all day. But Mm -hmm. all of these these actors have really brought their A game to the series. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like I have been one of the most fortunate people ever to have something adapted. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same uh, guys, uh, Jim Mickle and Dick Dimitri, who are the, the directors, and, and uh, Jim's the director, and he and Nick write a lot of the episodes. I also did Cold in July, uh, which is a novel of mine, and mm-hmm. so I, I'm going to have beasts with everything of mine that's adapted, except Bubba Hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that, uh, uh, you know, they are minor. I've, I've been very fortunate so far, so I'm waiting for a big, nasty, heavy shoe to drop. Yep. 
on the next thing of mine that's done. Because I have been, I, I have been more than fortunate. And, and, you know, I don't want to use the word lucky. I have just been very fortunate in that the people like Don Coscarelli and, and Jim Mickle and Nick Dimici uh, have really got the work. You know, there's times when they take a direction I don't like. There are times that being northern people, they'll write something and I go, oh, no, ouch, no, you know, <laughs> but because um, it doesn't sound right. But right. but those are minor beasts. And if you were putting it on a 100% scale and I said what I don't like, I would say it's probably eh, 20% that I don't like, and I'm lenient on 10% of that. Mm-hmm. And the other 90%, I really like. Well, I, I think eighty oh, percent. Really yeah, lie. you know, I think it, yeah, like you're saying, it's unfair. You know, I mean, you're to go from book to screen. The book is always better. You get the characters' heads. You get the world. You get so much more detail. Yeah, you get, you get a bigger story. Um, you know, I hope I hope the show drives people back to your books because you know, even the show. Yeah. More, I think they'll love the show more yeah. actually when they read the books because you just get so much more backstory, so much more yeah. of the world. But you know, I love the world they painted yeah. in the TV show. I think. You know, I'm I'm a, a northerner. You know, grew up in L.A. and you know, just but but to to kind of mm-hmm. when you read the books and then you you see it on the screen, you're just like, wow, this is really cool. Like just to try to imagine what it they, is really cool what they would be it like really and cool. great actors. I mean, mm-hmm. fantastic. Oh cast. yeah. I mean, they're oh, so good. Yeah. Um, I mean, just from James a show, Michael, wonderful. Yeah, from a show. I mean, that someone just wants to watch a good show. It's a really fantastic. Captain Leonard is amazing. Well, um, you know what I would tell you too. You you got you got. John Ward, who is the showrunner who, uh, for the second season and third season, also a great guy and very talented. And uh, the, the other thing about that is that, on the whole, it's also one of the most pleasant groups of people to be around. They, they, they mostly, you know, and as far as I can tell, everybody gets along pretty damn well. You know, they may have a, a, a scrap here and there over something, but it's, it's, they're wonderful sets to be on. Probably the best set I've ever been on in my life was the Cold in July set. You know, if there if there was a lot of negativity going on there, I didn't see it, and it was fun to be around Sam Shepard and Don Johnson and Michael C. Hall, and and of course Jim Mickle and and Nick Dimitri, who is a real good friend of mine. They both are, and and so it was great to be around uh, those people, and they were all working together. And when they had beefs, it was stuff that you know that they wanted the, the show to be better, and it was minor stuff. So when you have that, and we have that on Happen Leonard, they had that on Bubba Hotep, which is my favorite adaptation of all of my work because it's the most literal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it also, you know, the thing that, that because what comes to Bubba Hotep, I always say, look, guys, you can actually adapt a book or story far closer to what it is than you did. Mm-hmm. Now, they always have plenty of reasons they don't, but the real reason that happens most of the time is that the writers want to be sure they get their props. They want everybody to know I didn't just copy this. I did something of my own. And I generally find the best adaptations are those where they copy it. And, uh, you know, you can bring something new in. You can develop a character. You can condense some things. You know, I'm not a literalist, but I do believe that most adaptations of certain kinds of work can be closer to what was written. As I, as I told them, I said, I may not like the world's best dialogue, but I like the best dialogue for my characters. Mm-hmm. And I think my dialogues sometimes superior to what they choose, mm-hmm. you know, but then again, to get up and, and, you know, them send that to me and look at it. I, I always feel that that's the happen in world. It may be an alternate universe to some extent, but I know that world. I'm familiar with that world mm-hmm. and I love those guys. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my honest approach. You know, those, those are the, 
the bumps I see, but also the glories are a lot higher and a lot, you know, more enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your perspective from behind the, the camera and the scenes because I, I don't think people realize that kind of how from book to, to TV or film, what, what that looks yeah, like. Yeah, I'm supposed to direct a film myself. Yeah. I'm working on one that I, my, my son did the uh, adaptation from a, a story of mine. And it's, an, and it's an example of how somebody can adapt something and it'd be like a story and yet, you know, have some changes here and there that make sense. You know, sometimes I think people say, well, if they've read the book or they've seen the story, we want to be sure and fool them. But the truth of the matter is, if you put a TV show on, there are so many people that are watching it that have never even heard of you. So you're not really, right. you know, doing that because they don't know one way or the other. And a lot of times it's the opposite with the fans of the books. They go, why did they change? I get that more than anything else is why isn't the dialogue like your dialogue in that spot? <laughs> or why did they, you know, because they're real fans. And I, I love them and I appreciate it. But what I'm saying is that, you know, I, I don't care that too far, but I want to say it's really, you know, I'm very happy with it. But also, like this adaptation my son did of The Projection is a story that I hope to direct if uh, everything falls in place, and it may not. But if it does, uh, I think this is a very good example of how to do a great screenplay based on uh, a story. No, I, I think that's that's, that's so, so insightful because, yeah, you're, you're like, you know, watching these the movies and TV and you're going, hey, they don't talk like that. Where's that line? Where's that? You yeah. Know? Right, well, right, 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 right. Um, so just as I want to be sensitive to your your time as we, we kind of wind up um, our our conversation, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. So oh, sure. t- tell me, sure. Joe, one of the things that I'm always impressed by you and as I've listened to interviews and, and read your work and is, is you're just such a passionate guy. You have so much joy in, in what you're doing after all these years. I mean, what, what kind of keeps you motivated? What keeps you excited about, about the craft, about, you know, have this kind of dour, like, Hey, at least we're not digging ditches. I mean, you're, you're, you have a very positive <laughs> perspective on you know, writing and creating what, what kind of keeps you going? You know, I, I think that in some ways you you get it. We talked about a lot of it already. You know, when you said I'm, at least I'm not digging ditches, well, that could have well, well been my life. You know, I had I had high school and a couple of years of college, and it was just too expensive for me. And and I wanted to be a writer, and I got my dream. I'm one of those people that got their dream. I also became a martial artist, which was another important thing to me. And I've done that for 55 years. You know, I'm getting a little long in the tooth for it, but I still teach it, and I'm still you know. Uh, pretty good at it. And those are things that I wanted to do and I got to do them. So I'm one of those people that I, I didn't just fall into this. I always wanted to do it. So that's one thing that helps me is knowing I got my dream. The second thing is that I don't have to do those kind of jobs. I don't want to do the third thing is I get such joy from it because I write the stories I want to write, which is what we, we talked about before instead of the stories other people want me to write. And the, and the other thing is that, I read all the time, so I have this joy of reading and this joy of excitement. And there's nothing more exciting to read somebody that can do something that you can't, and you go, how did they do that? <laughs> and so then you get excited about trying to do your own approach to that. And, you know, it becomes your approach, not theirs, but you've learned from them. So it's a constant learning uh, curve all the time. You never master writing. You get better at it. And uh, But, you know, when people say, well, you know, you always got it. You're always sure that you're going to be able to do it. Well, no, actually, I'm not. I assume I will be able to I'm from experience. But I also know that every time out, there's a point where I go, have I ever written a story before? Have I ever written a novel before? What's going on here? <laughs> and then bump. 
I get right over that because the enthusiasm of the story keeps me going. And uh, I also, you know, I don't have a lot of drama in my life. You know, I, I don't go out and, you know, I've been married for 45 years. My wife and I have had a, have a great marriage. I've got two great kids who are both creative. You know, say, uh, my daughter's a singer and a songwriter, and uh, she does commercials and acting. And, you know, she's just got everything going. My son writes screenplays and comics, We and he and I have written the X-Files, some X-Files comics together. And so there's all of this. These, these things that just keep me excited and also friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, and part of it may just be that it's my nature. You know, I'm, I'm a very happy person. I'm a very uh, contented person. That doesn't mean I don't have bad days, but mm-hmm. I'm fortunate in that chemically I'm just not inclined towards depression. Mm-hmm. And if I'm depressed, it's because of something immediate that's happened bad in my life. Uh, you know, it's not uh, where I'm, I'm fortunate that I don't wake up just, you know, not knowing why I feel unhappy because I don't, I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. So some of it is chemistry. Some of it is just the luck of the draw. But a lot of it, too, is that forming attitudes early on. Like my mother taught me to enjoy the simplest things. And I come from such a poor background, too, that I'm, I feel like I'm living the life of Riley. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here in my house, which is a nice house, and I'm, I'm looking at a library full of books, and so those. Yeah, I know those. Those those seem simple, but those are the things that work for me that keep me happy. And I don't think happy is about being delirious all the time. Right. It, it it it's it's about a kind of groove you can get into, and it has little ups and downs. And there's no such thing as a you know constant euphoria, and mm-hmm. it's just not like that. Mm-hmm. But it may, it helps me get up in the morning and go, wow, I get to do mm-hmm. do this for a living, and okay. people pay me. That's great. What a great perspective. Um, hey, Joe, I know you always have a million things going on, um, but anything, any projects you have coming out soon, anything people need to know about, and then where, well, where can they find you? Jack Rabbit Smile is out right now. Um, uh, I've just done a book tour on it, although I am doing a signing in Kilgore, Texas this, this uh, Saturday. But uh, it's out, and my daughter and I have a book coming out later this month called Tara Is Our Business. That's that fun Super normal detective uh, thing I told you about. It's a series of novellas. Uh, so those two things are, are, are coming out. And the X-Files comics, uh, my son and I wrote, uh, it's a two-part uh, story, is coming out shortly. And Bubba Hotep, the Cosmic Bloodsuckers, a novella I wrote, has been adapted to comics. And it's forthcoming uh, right now. So Great. those are the things that are most prominent at the moment. Well, great. Yeah. And you have a website, Facebook, you're all over the place, right? Yeah, I have a website, uh, Joe R. Lansdale, uh, you know, www.joerlansdale.com. I have uh, uh, a fan page. I don't have a regular Facebook page, mm-hmm. uh, but I have a fan page that, that's easy to find on uh, on Facebook, although it's not a regular, as I said, Facebook page. I'm on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm easy to find just about anywhere. Yeah. Well, Joe, you have uh, blessed so many people by coming on the show. You've helped a lot of writers. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, making it happen. Gladly. And, hey, all the best, and uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime. You bet. Take care, man. Well, there you have it, prolific writer nation, Joe R. Lansdale. If you have not checked out his Happen Leonard novels, if you have not checked out the TV show Happen Leonard on AMC, please do. Uh, go check out his work, check out his books. He's written in a variety of uh, genres. He's, he's created films, graphic novels, short stories, novels, you, you name it. 
he's done it. And Joe has just offered us some huge writerly advice. And the workman attitude that he has, it's button chair, it's three hours a day, it's getting down the words. There's really not a magic formula for writers. There's not a magic formula for creators. And it's the artist is the same as the guy who goes and is a plumber, or a teacher, or an engineer, takes care of kids. We, we get up, we do the work. Some days we don't feel like it. Some days we don't have it, but we just keep putting in the work. And we all have stories to tell. and We all have things we want to share with the world. And, and we can't let markets, we can't let people dictate what that is. You write for yourself and you write for the message that you have in your heart. And so thank you, Joe, for coming on the show. This is one I'm going to listen to a few times just for my own writing journey. And so thank you. Thank you, Joe. So a couple things before I close out our episode this week is one is as always, if you get a chance, leave a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Google play, wherever you listen to the show, it really helps us get the show out into the world. And also wanted to let you know, we we have some cool stuff coming down the pipe. Um, I have been, running a publishing company for quite a few times, quite a few years, I should say, with my own books and things and have a a friend who's who's joining me in that journey. And we're going to be relaunching our Rock House Publishing uh, company as well and our website. And there's going to be a lot of cool stuff there as well. And we're going to try to continue to help a lot of a lot of writers, especially get into writing and publishing. And if you need help with that, please uh, be looking for that. We'll give you some more information on that down the road because we're really here that we want to help you write fast and often and well and that's what we're committed to and 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 hopefully this podcast is a little piece uh to help you do that and i mean that from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for everyone and your kind words and your emails every week your questions your comments uh your encouragements Uh, i'm really thankful to be able to do this podcast and i look forward to talking to you all real real soon and before i do that though one thing you need to do is get those words on the page no seriously go, go do that now Joe R. Lansdale just told you, you need to do that. You need to do that. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Once upon a time, a madman, poet, and thief known as John Urbansick, that's me, challenged himself, myself, to write a story a day, every day, for a year, by hand. Some of them worked. Some of them failed. Some of them were spectacular. Then I did it again. Join me every week for Ink Stains as I do it a third time. And I will read you some of these stories. I'll talk about the process, about creativity in general, writing in specific, and maybe I can help ignite your artistic adventures. This has been an exclusive presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. 